You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and you can find me at Conquers3 on Twitter. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Charlie Huggins, Head of Equities at Wealth Club, the award-winning tax-efficient investment service. Charlie is also the manager of the recently launched Wealth Club Discretionary Share Portfolio. Hello, Charlie, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Peter. Charlie, I want to start our interview, if I may, um, with the fact that you were born and schooled in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, and both your parents worked in the steel industry. What did you learn from your tenacious parents, given you were and around the declining steel industry of Sheffield? Uh, yeah, well, it was it wasn't an easy industry to be in. <laughs> so my my dad in particular worked very long hours um, for not great reward. You know, every every year it seemed to be that more and more people were laid off in his uh, businesses that he worked for. Um, so probably the main thing I learned from that is try not to work in a declining industry. Um, but he was, uh, he, he worked, uh, in the steel industry all his, all his career. He was made redundant at the age of 55 and then moved to another steel, uh, tool industry, uh, and lasted about 10 years in that. And then eventually they, um, made him redundant, but he could then retire. So it was a, a difficult choice of career, uh, I would say. Um, so, so that was probably the main thing I learned is try not to try not to work for or invest in declining industries if you can avoid it. Uh, and if you do, um, the value of hard work, because he, always, he just had to work harder than everyone else to make sure that he was always the last person standing at the end. Brilliant. I love that reply. And um, as as is the ethos of most people that I, I know that are up north, um, Lancashire and Yorkshire. So that's very true. Tenacious and hardworking. Now, Charlie, you did extremely well academically. And um, as, as a lad from Sheffield, you went on to Oxford University 2007, studying masters in biochemistry. And you graduated with a first in 2011. Your parents must have been immensely proud and still proud of that, that academic achievement that you attained at Oxford. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it wasn't uh, wasn't that common for, uh, I think there was one other person from my school that went to Oxford. Um, it's quite a big school. Um, but yeah, it was a very different environment, Oxford, to uh, to the to what I've been brought up in, in, in Sheffield, going to state schools in Sheffield. It was uh, slightly slightly different environment, but uh, shall we say. So I, I it took a took a bit of adapting to. Um, and what did you learn from that time there at uni? Well, I, I mean, I learned, as I said, going from one extreme to the other, really, uh, from from where I'd what I've been brought up to, then going to Oxford, which is such a uh, unusual place. Um, uh, also, having done a degree uh, biochemistry that, which in hindsight probably you know didn't didn't enjoy very much i think the reason i chose it was because um you know i, I was reasonably good at biology and chemistry it seemed like the right thing to do it seemed like it would open up career opportunities for me 
um, you know, it would look good on the CV, that kind of stuff. I think as you get older, you realize that actually that stuff isn't all that important and it's much more important to do what you're passionate and interested in because that's the thing that ultimately sustains you. You know, I, I couldn't do any more than four years old, so that was my absolute limit to do biochemistry. And I thought, what can I go on and do that truly interests me and inspires me? And that was why I ended up going into investing and finance i suppose probably quite a lot of people go into investing in finance thinking oh you know it's it'll be a great job and great money or whatever but for me it was purely about this is what i think uh, this is the career that i want to pursue this is what truly interests me so it was a, a 360 uh, switch or 180 switch or whatever from doing biochemistry to uh, to finance yeah i was going to touch on that because that's the twist i was going to ask you about you're qualified in biochemistry but then you you always had this keen interest in finance and investing. And I wanted to ask you where that started from. You know, how how young were you? Um, I was, I probably bought my first share when I was in my late teens. I think my mum was a standard life policy holder. She had some standard life shares and I ended up buying them off her. Um, so I suppose in theory, I didn't actually own them. She still owned them, but I gave her money and I, in effect, owned them from that point on. Um, so I started early. I also invested in quite a big part of my student loan into the stock market in 2007-8, up to 2008-9, uh, which obviously we know how that ended. That didn't go, <laughs> didn't end too well. Um, in terms of where it came from, I genuinely have no idea. Um, my parents were not at all interested in finance or investing. Obviously, knew nothing about it, like uh, like many people in this country I suppose financial education wasn't um mm. it was never really been taught in schools or anything so they they didn't know much about it um my granddad did used to invest uh, a little bit so I, I learned a little bit from him but I think it was just something I was born with yeah thank, thank you for that reply did did the events of the financial crisis and the crash and those investments that you made with your student loan did they have any impact on your thinking about actually I'd like to go into that industry at some point in the future i mean i suppose it probably should have put me off really <laughs> because uh, it's not all you know it, it was literally i think i invested a few months before it crashed and it it, it was anyone who remembers that time 0809 uh, lines of queues outside northern rock uh, every time you turn the nine o'clock news uh, 10 o'clock news on it was stories about more troubles at banks or more you know, economy. Every, the news was just awful around that time and the stock market was was awful. Um, so it probably should have put me off. It, it didn't. If anything, it probably made me even more fascinated by it. Um, but I, I think it probably did instill a sense of caution in me that's probably never left me because um, I think those early experiences inevitably do impact you so uh, I think that probably has had some impact on my investment approach ever since it's hard to say isn't it you never quite know but one thing it didn't do thankfully was put me off brilliant thank you for that reply now Charlie you joined Argus Lansdowne in 2012 20, 2011 sorry straight from the university and and you joined us on, on a graduate scheme please can you share with us how that came about and uh, and what it entailed that scheme that you were on um that was I, I was coming towards the end of my time at Oxford uh, obviously as I said knew that I wanted a job in finance uh, I knew a lot about Hargreaves Lansdowne 
um, having interacted with them. My granddad was a client of theirs, so I knew quite a lot about how Cruise lands down. I looked at them and I thought, this is a tremendous business and everything it does I'm interested in in terms of investing, ISAs, pensions. Uh, so I, I just sent a purely speculative application to them um, and didn't hear anything. So I sent them another speculative application and didn't hear anything. And then I think on the third time, it ended in the lap of Alex Davies, who was director of pensions at that time. He then later left to set up Wealth Club, which is who I'm now working for. Um, but they they created a graduate scheme for me, uh, luckily. Um, so I was the only one on that scheme initially. They've since expanded it um, quite significantly. Um, but that just gave me the opportunity to rotate around the business and to learn all about different parts of Hargreaves Lansdowne's uh, business. So that was, uh, it was a good foundation in, into a good learning opportunity uh, just to have exposure to so many different parts of, of what was a tremendously run business with uh, Peter Hargreaves, the founder, was still there at that time. And it was just a very slick operation. Brilliant. Now, you, you joined the research team initially, working as a fund research analyst, Charlie. Um, what were you researching? Who were you meeting? And what were your greatest lessons from that time? Um, yeah, so soon after the uh, graduate rotation scheme, I moved into the research department, which was my main area of interest. Uh, initially, as a fund research analyst, as you say, um, that just gave me the opportunity to meet lots of fund managers, uh, to study their track records, to uh, get inside their brains, to see how they thought, to see um, what mistakes they made, uh, what um, to see what worked and what didn't really. Um, and obviously meeting so many different fund managers gave me exposure to lots of different styles of how people did it and you know so that was quite interesting Hargreaves Lansdowne was at that time and probably still is you know best known for its fund research so I was joining a team that was um that was very well set up to research funds uh as time went on I would also uh, do more on the on the shares I would research shares start writing more about shares so it did the role did evolve um but yeah it was just getting getting that insight uh, into how the fund management industry worked really was was the biggest lesson. Great, thank you for that reply. Now, um, Harvey's Lansdowne clearly nurtured your talents because um, you were quite young, if I may say so, um, and you helped to establish and run the HL Select Funds and you were managing money at quite a young age. Yeah, so when we, um, so Hargreaves Lansdowne had run multi-manager funds in the past but it had never run a direct equity uh, fund uh, that invested into shares rather than funds so um i uh, because of my interest in shares um probably more luck than anything there was no one really else in the business that uh, wanted to to do that uh, or that was positioned to do that so at a very young age i was given uh, the chance to launch and establish the hl select funds which um launched around december 2016 uh select uk growth and then um later, uh, after that a, a uk income fund um so yeah i think i was i was about 27 when i um started managing those funds um did that for about five years before joining wealth club so yes that was uh it, it was great to be given that opportunity to run money at such an early age i learned a tremendous amount um made lots of mistakes <laughs> um so yeah 
but but you also had a great performance during those fi that five year tenure or so when you were running it as well. Uh, yeah, um, the performance was was reasonable. Um, it's always difficult to say, isn't it, with hindsight, how much of that is luck and how much is judgment. Um, probably a, a combination of the two. Um, I I would deem five years as a as a very short track record, really, uh, in the context of yeah, I my investment style is sort of very very long term. So I think you always need to be careful about. Um, uh, you know, taking too much, too much, too many lessons from a, from a short track record. But yes, it was it was reasonably good. Um, but most of all, it was just having the opportunity to to run money for other people and and all the. There's, there's no substitute for that. Uh, you can. I was running my own money. I have been for many many years. Uh, as I said, since my early teen, uh, since my late teens. But when you're running money for other people, that's when you really learn um, that it's a. It, it feels different. You know, it's, it's one thing losing money for yourself is another losing money for other people yeah and you also had to to overcome the hurdles of what was the the the, the covid period as well lots of uncertainty volatility markets and you navigated that um really quite assured as well well that was that was a very interesting time i mean it's easy to look back now and say you know, COVID, yes, vaccines are going to come along and yes, we're all going to get out and about again and economies are going to open up. But at the time, that was um, far from assured. Uh, we didn't even know whether we would have vaccines. Um, we didn't even know whether people would be allowed out of their homes. Um, and revenues for a lot of businesses just disappeared overnight. And obviously, government stepped in and helped out businesses, which was, thank, thank God they did. Um, but at the time, that was far from obvious. So yeah, that was that was an interesting time, definitely. Brilliant. Now, given how successful you'd been at Targives Lansdowne, what was the driver after ten years to to leave? Um, it was mainly just a new opportunity uh, that came up at Wealth Club. So, uh, as I said, the founder of Wealth Club, Alex Davies, um, I had worked with in the past. We'd kept in touch. Uh, he was um, <clears throat> he was keen for me to go and launch a portfolio for him because I was at Hargreaves Lansdowne already running money. I was, uh, you know, putting him off quite a lot and saying, look, I'm still still happy at Hargreaves Lansdowne, still uh, trying to get a track record. Um, but eventually he managed to persuade me. Um, but I think by that time, by the end of the five years, um, I was ready for a new challenge. Uh, I could have continued to work at Hargreaves Lansdowne, continued to take salary and bonus and what have you and you know accumulated money instead i thought no i'll uh i think i'll learn more by launching a portfolio for myself and i think in this industry in this career is is you just have to keep on learning keep on learning keep on learning i probably i'm sure i would have kept on learning at harbury's Lansdowne, but i felt that uh this was an opportunity to learn even more and to launch a portfolio that could i could really call my own and that um i could manage in a way that was exactly how I would run my own money so that was that was the idea behind it brilliant uh, we're going to talk a bit more about your portfolio a bit later you joined the wealth club in April 2022 um, please can you share with us an overview of the wealth club its investment philosophy and its methodology for evaluating the best long-term investments and who are you, you are your preferred client group um, yeah, so Wealth Club has been um, 
a, a leader really in tax efficient investing, um, VCTs, EIS. Um, so that was how the that was what the business was established on tax efficient investing, and it's done a very good job in that area. Um, as a lot of the other platforms um, have uh, curtailed their um, activities in those areas, Wealthlub has has gone off after that niche very successfully. Um, so anyone looking for tax efficient investments um, would come to Wealth Club, and there's pro- there's no better place for that. Um, as time has gone on and the business has grown, um, and it's still a small um, business but highly profitable, as the business has uh, has grown, it has great ambition, and it now wants to expand into offering more mainstream investments. And that was where the idea of offering the quality shares portfolio came along uh, to offer. Uh, a portfolio of great businesses, um, 15 to 20 businesses selected from across the globe, um, a very high conviction portfolio, uh, and not just um, a tax uh, saving vehicle, but this is hopefully a, a portfolio that people can own for the long term and uh, to grow their long term wealth. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Now, you launched, as you say, um, the quality shares portfolio in March 2023. Um, please can you share with us the key elements you look for in a company for it to be included in your portfolio, Charlie? Yeah, so the portfolio is um, no has very, very few restrictions. So this is a global portfolio. It can go um, in any developed market. Uh, there's no real size restrictions. So it, this is very much a best ideas portfolio. Um, and what I wanted to create was a portfolio of exceptional businesses. Uh, first and foremost, the be- the best possible businesses I could find. That was what I was looking for. Um, so how do I define that? Um, it's a few things. It has to be, I have to understand the business. So there's many businesses and, and I've learned more and more as I've gone on uh, that are very difficult to understand. Um, uh, Warren Buffett talks about a circle of competence and he says, you know, you must stay within your circle of competence. And as, as time's gone on, I've probably learned that my circle of competence is smaller and smaller than I initially thought it was. Um, so most businesses uh, are excluded on the basis of me not being able to understand them or just having complex, complex business model, complex accounting. If I understand it, what I'm looking for then is first and foremost resilience. Great businesses uh, endure over time. They adapt. They are able to survive periods of crisis because the one thing you can guarantee is that we'll get a crisis. I've seen in my relatively short time the financial crisis and the COVID pandemic, and I'm sure that there'll be another crisis in the next few years. It's just inevitable. You need to find businesses that can survive a crisis. That means having loyal customers, often recurring revenue, very strong balance sheet, and a business model that is uh, durable. Uh, In addition to that, I'm looking for a very strong competitive moat. Um, It's not lack of growth opportunities that destroys businesses, it's competition. Uh, If you can find a business that is um, as immune as possible from competitive factors, then it will be much more likely to endure and it will be much more resilient. Uh, That can come from brands or distribution networks. Um, There are many things that play into the moat of a business, but that is a key thing I'm looking for. Uh, once I found a business model that is resilient and relatively immune to competition, uh, the management and culture are critical um, because the culture within a business dictates how decisions are made. Uh, it dictates what kind of people end up working for a business. It depends. It dictates what kind of people are retained within a business. 
Uh, it dictates the talent within a business. Uh, it dictates almost everything, the culture. And it's something that few investors pay enough attention to, in my view. Uh, but if you get the management and culture of business right, everything else tends to look after itself. Uh, and then the final thing is cash generation. Um, you can have all of that and still not generate very much cash. Um, and profit and cash are not the same thing. Some businesses are quite good at, well, we've seen a lot of businesses very good at generating revenue, um, not very good at generating profit and even worse at generating cash. I'm looking for businesses that prioritize cash. Um, they're not reliant on factories, machineries, uh, you know, heavy machinery. They tend to be more reliant on the brains of their employees than they are on physical assets. And they just generate tons of cash in good times and bad. So that combination of factors is what I'm looking for. And then I have a 60 point investment checklist that I assess all these factors through, which helps to helps me to make sure I'm not overlooking um, anything and keeps me on the straight and narrow, hopefully. Brilliant. I love the fact that you've got a 60 point checklist. That seems huge to me, but I think it's very important that you that you probably expand on why that's so important because there's going to be supposedly a large, you know, 10,000 stocks globally, probably that could, you know, that could be assessed, but you're trying to find 15, if not 20. Um, so where do most supposed quality stocks fail your benchmark, um, Charlie, to be included? Um, where do most of them fail? It's, it's probably the competition piece, actually. Um, it, it, you've got to, if you're investing in a quality business, you've got to be as sure as possible that it's still going to be thriving 10 years from now, 10 or 20 years from now. Uh, and we've seen many businesses um, fall by the wayside, many tech, tech, uh, tech businesses in particular. Um, now, normally that's either competition, think of, you know, Blockbuster and Netflix, uh, Netflix coming along and Blockbuster um, not reacting to that. And so that's competition, but also technological change. Um, so I would say the majority of businesses are either doing something that uh, is relatively easy for the competition to replicate um, and or are in an area which you think technology, changing technology or changing, te uh, changing trends could disrupt that business. So they're probably the two biggest reasons, but it could... It could be, I don't like the culture. It could be that, I, as I said, that I don't understand it. Maybe it's a great business, but I just don't understand it well enough. Uh, you know, look at all the problems that investors in banks have had because who who, who understands banks? I mean, I, I don't. Um, most banks are incredible. If you try going through their accounts or insurers, incredibly difficult to understand. Um so, yeah, they're probably the main two, but they, they can fail for all number of reasons. Uh, balance sheet sometimes. Sometimes you think this is a great business, but why has it got so much debt or why have they structured the balance sheet in that way? Um, sometimes it's just I don't like overly cyclical businesses generally. I do make some exceptions, but I don't want a business that as soon as the economy turns down, you know, it's going to start making losses or whatever. There's quite a lot of businesses like that. Uh, the cash a business can fall down. As I said, not that many businesses are excel at generating cash. So it can be all manner of reasons. And that's the point of the checklist is to go through each one and say, well, what do I really think about this? Because it's very easy to sell yourself a narrative. You know, human beings, we love narratives. We love stories. And the checklist forces you to say, 
well, the narrative may be great, but on this point, it fails. And no business will ever tick every box. It's just, I don't know any business that's ticked every 60 boxes, but it's just, you know, you want as many ticks as possible. Brilliant. Love that response. Thank you ever so much for that clarity as well, um, Charlie. Appreciate it. You place a great deal of importance, Charlie, in the, regarding your quality companies having growing and strong free cash flow. For the inexperienced investor, please can you just expand on why that's so vital? Yeah, so free cash flow is is the cash that's left over at a business after it's paid its bills, basically, after it's paid any capital expenditures that it needs to make, um, you know, after it's paid its employees, after it's paid taxes, interest on debts, whatever. So the cash is, think of it of what's in the till at the end of the day or at the end of the year. And that cash gives a business so many options. So business that generates lots of free cash flow can then go out and it could acquire other businesses. It can pay off debts. It can um, expand its existing business uh, or it can return that cash to shareholders. All of those are good options for, if done sensibly, are, are good options for um, shareholders. Um, the worst type of businesses to own are the ones where it runs really hard to stand still. It has to invest loads in you know, new manufacturing facilities or new oil wells or whatever. And then you get to the end of the year and all the cash is gone. Um, I want to see a business at the end of the year that generates as much cash as possible. Ultimately, that is is um, how you value a business as well, is on cash flow. Um, you've probably heard of, you know, discounted cash flow models and all of that. Um, the value of a business depends on how much cash it generates, free cash it generates between now and judgment day, which is when the business ceases to exist. That is how you value a business. So really, <clears throat> the only thing you should care about as an investor is the cash. Nothing else really matters. Uh, revenue doesn't matter. Profit doesn't matter because profit is just an accounting term. Uh, it's the cold, hard cash that comes into a business because at the end of the day, cash is what pays bills. Profit doesn't pay bills. Revenue doesn't pay bills. Cash pays bills. And cash is what allows a business to expand and to reward its shareholders with dividends, share buybacks, etc. Brilliant reply. Thank you ever so much. Now, given your forensically detailed research, analysis and filtering process of your checklist, please can you provide and share with us three distinctly different companies that you've already selected for your portfolio, please? Three company examples. Um, well, one which I've talked about quite a lot is uh, Diploma. It's uh, listed in the UK, uh, around about 3 billion market capitalization. Uh, it's an industrial distributor of um industrial components such as seals um so they go into things like heavy mobile machinery so if you look on a local construction site you see a big piece of caterpillar equipment um seals you know that piece of equipment will contain lots of seals which basically it's hard to describe to somebody who doesn't um work in that industry but they are critical for that machinery to operate um, and if the, they often break and, uh, and people who own that machinery need a replacement seal quickly, Diploma will has a large group of suppliers, which you can go to and can get any seal that you want and can uh, supply it to you the next day. Um, that's not all it does. It, it provides lots of critical um, components that go into mainly industrial and medical uh, appliances. Um, why do I like it? Well, it's 
it's hard to see that business going out of fashion. You know, it's hard to see any technology that comes along to disrupt it. It's extremely cash generative because um, it's not, it doesn't own, it doesn't make these products itself. It's just a distributor. Um, so it doesn't need big manufacturing facilities or factories. Uh, and added to that, it has... Um, an excellent culture in my view, decentralized culture, which means that it contains lots of different individual operating businesses, all with their own um, owner operator running them uh, with their own profit and loss account. So very accountable, very agile, very entrepreneurial. Uh, it's made some very good acquisitions um, and it's operating in growing markets and it's got the ability to do acquisitions to supplement that. So. It has good growth prospects, uh, in my view, and um, and it's it's a resilient business. Um, on the other end of the scale, something like Relax, which uh, does academic journals, um, it uh, provides data and tools um, to scientists, to lawyers, um, to financial institutions for doing uh, fraud checks and know your customer checks. Um, the, the the data and the tools that that Relax provides to its customers are critical. They tend to be required in good times and bad, because you know doing fraud checks, for example, or accessing medical research is something that uh, you need no matter what. Uh, very high recurring revenue, uh, very highly cash generative, um, and again sensibly managed. Um, it's not a business that tends to make the headlines. It's not a business that. Um, uh, many people have even heard of uh, or come across, but if you're a lawyer, if you're a scientist, um, or if you work in finance, um, or even many other industries, you you may rely on them every day. Um, or, or you know, insurers use Relax data for um, for writing quotes, um, for example. Uh, so it's absolutely critical. Um, so that's a, another example of a business that I like. Um, and another one, um, Danaher is a life sciences um, business. It provides um, it provides equipment to um, biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies. It provides uh, di um, diagnostic equipment. Um, the thing I like about them is is that they're sort of a picks and shovels um, provider to that industry. So the trouble with investing in a biotechnology or pharmaceutical business is you're always reliant on the next drug. You know, what, what's the next big drug that's going to come out? And now there's there's loads of uh, new therapies in development at the moment, uh, and they're tremendously exciting, um, opening up the potential for treating diabetes, Alzheimer's, lots of different diseases, which we've never really been able to treat well before. But trying to pick a winner amongst the individual companies is very difficult, and you've got the risk of drug development Whereas Danaher is providing, equi providing equipment to those companies. Um, so whoever wins, they should benefit as long as these new therapies get launched. Um, so again, it's not maybe not the most exciting way to play the theme, but it's a more resilient way because I like businesses where, um, you know, heads I win, tails I don't lose very much and that they've got lots of shots on goal. Um, I, I dislike businesses that are heavily reliant on a single customer, a single drug, a single thing happening. Uh, so AI is another great example of, you know, Relax has been incorporating AI into its data and solutions for many years. Um, I'm not going to go invest in a new AI company that might do well if AI takes off. I want somebody who's applying it more, more broadly.
So there are three examples that I would give. Thank you so much for that. And you covered my second phase of my question, which is going to cover Relics being an under-the-radar AI company. So thank you for that. Um, now, Charlie, we spoke already a little bit about some stocks that haven't made the grade. Please, can you share with us two popular high-quality names which have not yet met your criteria to be within your quality shares portfolio? Um, well, Unilever is quite a good example. Um you know, in it, it, it's a good business. Um, it, ha it has some very good brands. Um, it's very resilient. It stood the test of time. Um, it does generate a lot of cash, um, but the, the the culture of that business hasn't been right, in my view, over the last decade, uh, or at least the last decade. Um, you know, I, I I think it's quite bureaucratic. Uh, I think they own too many brands. Uh, I think the management has been too focused on acquisition um, and not not focused enough on disposals. Um, return on capital has uh, has been declining for several years. So that's an example of a business where actually I quite like the business, um, but the management and culture is not. Um, it, it fails the the checklist mainly on the management and culture piece. Um, they do have new management coming in um so that could change I'll, I'll monitor that one um so that one fails um i suppose another popular business would be amazon um is not one that i'm considering owning um it's very capital intensive um it's having to spend a lot of money on or it has spent a lot of money on new warehouses for example so during the pandemic um obviously at the time everyone thought this is great for Amazon because everyone's shopping online all of a sudden and Amazon's one of the few places they can get goods. Um, but Amazon ha had to invest a lot of money in order to meet that demand and um, the returns that it makes on on its investments, not just in warehousing, but in, in lots of different areas that the company is investing in, um, I think is, is hard for me to appraise. Um, I prefer businesses where every pound or dollar that they spend I can say with some confidence that will generate a very good return for me as a shareholder and I'm not sure you can say that about Amazon uh, it's also just a very complicated business um, and Amazon needs to stay on top of changing trends and it has done phenomenally I'm not you know I think Amazon's a tremendous business I'm not saying that it isn't but it's a business that always needs to stay one step ahead and again I prefer businesses that don't have to always be at the forefront of change uh, because that's hard to do. Uh, and obviously Jeff Bezos has, has been phenomenal uh, leading that business. I don't know now he's, he's stepped back, but um, uh, you know, you compare Amazon to say a Microsoft, you know, few people would say Microsoft is an, is a true, you know, cutting edge innovator. It's tended to always be there and it's tended to use its existing customer relationships and distribution to, um, that's bought it time to adapt to new trends. Um, so um, I prefer a business like Microsoft to an Amazon for that reason. It, it comes back to resilience. It's resilience again. Thank you. Uh, I love the, the the examples you've given there as well. I really appreciate it. Now, Charlie, given your long-term investment plan and you see, and the fact that you seek to do little or no trading bar rebalancing, which sort of negative company issues um, could trigger an instant sell for you? An instant sell. Um, I mean, it's 
it's going to be something that undermines my confidence in either the management uh, culture or business model. Um, so I can be wrong on all three, unfortunately. <laughs> I can be wrong on the business model um, if I think that the business isn't as resilient um, as I thought it was. Um, then that would be a reason to sell. Um, if I thought the management and culture is 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 good, but it turns out not to be. Uh, I mean, if I had any doubts about the integrity of management, um, and we've seen obviously this, this happened quite a lot, where uh, uh, a company comes out and says, "Well, our management have been uh, not behaving in the right way." If if I think that they're not treating employees very well or suppliers you know i want a business that treats all its stakeholders well because ultimately that's the way to be sustainable um where everyone wins i don't like businesses where someone loses badly because i don't think you know there's a lot written about esg um and to my mind the least sustainable businesses are the ones where one of one of those stakeholder groups is losing out so if I had reason to think that, um, then that would be a, definitely a reason to reappraise. Uh, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to do, to change your mind uh, on a business. Uh, it's very easy to overlook the warning signs. Uh, and it's something that uh, I'm definitely not immune from. But you just have to, uh, again, the reason why the checklist is there is because you're saying, well, do I still think that? And uh, And if you don't, you do need to be willing to change your mind. Thank you. Now, now, Charlie, with regards to your checklist and monitoring your companies, which I know you'd be doing intensely uh, regarding your, your portfolio, will you be visiting the companies, the firms, speaking with the CEO, C CEOs, CFOs and attending AGMs, etc.? Um, in in some cases, yes. Yeah. So it really depends. Um, you look at a, a business like a Microsoft, for example, um, that, you know, I, I've, I've never met um Satya Nadella and, and may may never may, meet him but for a business like that there's so much information available online they do conferences um, which they release online you know you could spend all day reading through information so you get and there's so much written about um, the CEO so all the information I need is there I don't necessarily need to meet with him on the other hand a diploma um, which is a smaller business and less in the public eye and there's less written about it. Uh, that's a business where, well, I, I did recently meet their CEO. I, I recently had a call with their CEO, Johnny Thompson, a Zoom call um, to discuss mainly the culture of the business. Um, but uh, so so it really depends. Um, but yeah, some businesses I will meet, management, I will attend conferences, et cetera, and some uh, I may not. Uh, I don't really have a hard and fast rule. I just need to make sure that I can understand it. Sometimes meeting management can be a double-edged sword. Um, I think you have to really do your work on a business, do your research on a business before you meet management. If you meet management, then it, it comes back to what I'm saying before. If you meet management right at the start of your research process, you can buy into a story and a narrative. And then it's very hard to get out of that frame of mind when you're reading the balance sheet or something and seeing, oh, I don't quite like that, but I've, I've, you know, I've been sold a story. You have to be a bit careful. That's so true. Very, very true. Now, um, Charlie, given your high conviction wealth club um, quality share portfolio, um, in comparison to other funds in the in that sort of um, niche, how's yours going to differ? Um, 
I think there's probably a few ways. I think the, and, and this isn't exclusive to me, but I think the long-term approach um, of always viewing business, having an ownership lens around a business rather than I own a share of a business. I pretend I own the whole business and I treat myself as a business owner. And then I look to own that business for five, 10 plus years. Um, that approach isn't common with other fund managers. There are some notable exceptions. Um but, but it isn't common, I think, because short-termism does prevail uh, in the industry, unfortunately. And I've seen that on both sides of the fence. Um, I saw that, obviously, a lot when I studied um, fund managers uh, previous in my career. Um, so having that long-term view, ownership, business ownership mentality, uh, the number of stocks that I'm owning, um, 15 to 20, normally you'll, you'll often see 50 to 100 um, companies within a fund. Um, to my mind, that's far too many um, to keep track of. You can't possibly have as much conviction in your 50th or 100th idea as you do in your first. Um, so so that's um, a key difference. <clears throat> and then, as I was saying earlier, the, the culture, um, being so focused on culture uh, and management is not something that I see as, as common in the rest of the industry. You know, you can't boil culture down to a number on a spreadsheet. And I think a lot of investors and fund managers, they like to be able to uh, uh, to have things in spreadsheets. They like to be able to model earnings over the next year or two. I, I don't do that. I'm much more, much more interested in the employee reviews of a business than I am an analyst report because the employee reviews actually give me some insight into the business itself rather than uh, an analyst who's written about what the next quarter's earnings will be. So it's a very different approach. And, and then for people who do invest in my portfolio, I provide a lot of information. So most funds give you a, a fact sheet with top 10 holdings. I will, for investors in my portfolio, will see every single holding. I will write at least once a month explaining portfolio developments and, and what's going on, my thought processes, etc. Thank you for that. Now, how does one become an inv investor in your share portfolio and what are the charges, Charlie? Um, so the portfolio is, is available exclusively through Wealth Club. It's not on any other platform. Um, so you just need to go to our website and there's loads of information there with a video. Um, if you haven't had enough of me by, by now, but there's a, 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 another video you can watch um, and lots of information on there about the portfolio. Um, uh, the charges is, uh, is a 1% annual management charge. Uh, there's a 0.25% custody or plat uh, platform uh, charge as well. Thank you for that. Now, um, Charlie, investors often want to know that the performance of their investment is aligned with that of the individuals leading and managing the fund they're invested in. Have you and Alex Davies, the uh, founder of Wealth Club, invested some of your personal wealth into the portfolio and the, the management of Wealth Club? And could you share? Yes. Um, so I myself and my wife have a, a six-figure sum invested in the portfolio, which is uh, a substantial part of, of our wealth. Um, Alex Davies um, has also invested um, a substantial part of his wealth in the portfolio in, and intends to invest more as time goes on. Um, and ad, as have many other um, staff members at Wealth Club, actually. Um, so no pressure. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason, um, one of the reasons for setting up this portfolio was to provide a, a vehicle for 
you know, staff, employ, uh, employees at Wealth Club to invest into as well as clients. So it's very much a, uh, and I couldn't agree more, that alignment is essential between uh, the the manager and, and clients. Um, so I, I get the same companies that clients do and uh, I'm very, um, have every incentive to, uh, to make it work. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, Charlie, you spoke earlier about the importance of management and culture within companies. Please can you share how Alex Davies, the founder of Wealth Club, not only recognised your potential as a graduate in 2011, but is now building a new investment culture around and with you now in 2023, with the leadership culture being nurtured at Wealth Club? Um, oh, I think Alex Davies has always has always been very good at um hiring good people and just letting them get on with it um so you get a lot of uh and this has always been the case even when i work with him um hargreaves lansdowne you get a lot of autonomy um and a lot of responsibility and i think that is that is very much the culture uh that's created at wealth club it's very entrepreneurial um people are given a lot of autonomy and responsibility and i think that's a very good way to motivate people um i think too many businesses especially as they grow bigger they become very bureaucratic uh and they start putting barriers in the way of people to do their jobs and and actually doing the, the job uh the day job becomes less and less important uh, it becomes harder to do uh and many business businesses operate like that but wealth club is very much the opposite it's very much you know, everyone rolls their sleeves up um and uh, and everyone just gets on with with the job at hand and, and has the tools and responsibility to do so um and uh yeah it's it's really to summarize it's probably just an entrepreneurial culture uh, is the best way to describe it and that is something that i look for in businesses that i invest in is that entrepreneurial culture because if you're very bureaucratic uh, and full of process policy and procedure um it's a great way to lose relevance and you see it time and again with uh, with businesses as they grow larger they they stop innovating they become complacent they start hiring loads and loads of people and actually become less and less efficient because the more people you hire the more the responsibility dilutes uh, across a, a business and that's not what you want you want to employ a person and say this is your responsibility if you do it well you'll be rewarded and if you don't then we'll know where to come if it if things go wrong so uh to my mind that's the best way to run a business and that's how wealth club operates um, i agree with you entirely um thank you for that reply now charlie i've asked you all the questions that i had prepared um is there anything you wanted to add regarding this interview that we've had today um no i've, I've i think we've covered a lot of ground um i, I suppose I suppose we could draw out some general lessons for for investors as a whole. Um, how, well, I mean, I think individual investors are um, in a in a in a different position, um, uh, in a privileged position in some way to be able to take a longer term view. Uh, we talked about you know, fund managers and and uh, professional investors often being very short term i think if in individual investors can take that long term view 5 10 years then they may not have access to all the resources necessarily that a fund manager has but they're playing a different game and the the odds are stacked in their favor as long as um, you do your research but if you have that 
um, behavior, it's a behavioral edge really uh, that I think private investors in particular are very well um, well suited to capture. Uh, having patience, um, you know, not trying to get rich quickly, try to get rich slowly, uh, let compounding work for you um, by having that long-term perspective. Don't get wiped out, so diversify. Um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and and find those resilient businesses that can ride out the, the highs and lows to capture long-term compounding. Um, humility, you know, it's the more I've gone through investing, the, mo the more I've realized how little I know. Um, don't try to forecast what's going to happen next. Don't try and predict the economy or what the stock market's going to do. Don't try and time markets. Um, if you don't understand a business, move on. You know, there's plenty more businesses out there. Um, just have that humility to understand what 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 you do understand, what's it within your circle of competence. Um, and probably don't outsource your thinking either. You know, don't rely on tips. Don't rely on just because I've said about the businesses that I invest in, that's not a reason to invest yourself. It's, it's maybe a reason to do more research, but ultimately you have to come to your own opinion. Um, and uh, I think because if something goes wrong, you need to know why, and you need to know why you invested in the first place. Um, so I think for for shrewd private investors, um, the, there's there's no reason why they can't do just as well, if not better, than professionals if they play to their strengths. Um, and 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 as I mentioned, um, the management and culture side of things, ignore it at your peril. I would say it's something again that. Most professionals, I, I don't think, pay enough attention to, but private investors are, are perhaps better placed to uh, uh, to to understand. Uh, and, and if they do have that long-term perspective, then they can really benefit from those businesses with great cultures. Charlie, that was an absolutely fantastic synopsis of what our, our, our conversation, and thank you for sharing those highlights and insights for our uh, global um, listeners, which are some fund managers as well. Um, private, ultra high net worth individuals um, all listen to this Investing Matters podcast. Um, thank you ever so much. That was Charlie Huggins, Head of Equities and Manager of the Wealth Club Quality Shares Portfolio. Charlie, it's been a delight speaking with you today on the Investing Matters podcast. Take care. It's God bless been you. A, been a pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.